Welcome. You're listening to Activist NYC, the podcast on Family FM, recording inside Canal Street Radio. I am your host, Cindy Trin. Activist NYC is an ongoing documentary photo project about activism and social justice movements in New York City. This podcast is an extension of my Activist NYC project and will include interviews with activists, organizers, and political leaders in our city. My goal is to learn about what motivates activists to do the hard work they dedicate their lives to and discuss the important issues surrounding the people of New York. Stay with us. Welcome to our special Pride episode. I have two guests with me. Uh, the first is Jamie Jesperson, and later I'll be talking to Trevon Mayers from the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center. But first up is Jamie Jesperson, a 25-year-old white, queer, non-binary, trans femme educator and activist based in New York City. Jamie was politicized through studying settler colonialism and trans intersex liberation at the New School, a social justice-oriented college in NYC, where they also traveled abroad to research LGBTQIA rights in Ghana, South Africa, Rwanda, Uganda, and Malta. Following graduation, Jamie started working full-time in LGBTQIA education and advocacy with their activism featured by Gay Star News into Vice, Refinery29, and Freedom for All Americans. Jamie aspires towards a world unbound by the confines of the colonial gender binary where trans, non-binary, and intersex people can grow to their full potential without restriction. Thank you so much, Jamie, for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I love your outfit, and I love your look. I, I'm obsessed with it. I'm sorry oh I, don't, I don't look so great myself no, today. No, no, no. <laughs> I love it. I love the Adidas the, the sports weather, look. The weather is so bad right it's, now. It's unpredictable. It's like, it so looks humid cold. and gross. Mm-hmm, oh, but it's I can't warm. Stand it. But you look great. Thank you. Thank you. I just want everybody listening to know that. <laughs> um, so, Jamie, this is my first time meeting you. Yes. Um, I'm really excited for you to be here. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and um, being here during Pride Month. And uh, I want to know more about you because I don't know you at all. Um, so tell me, like, where are you from? Where did you grow mm-hmm. up? And mm-hmm. what was your family like? So I'm originally from um, a pretty small conservative religious town in Southern California. Um, I did not know California was actually seen as this, like, epicenter or safe haven of like liberal politics um, until I moved away at 18. I lived in a very kind of closed off community in Southern California. Oh, I'm from Orange County. Yeah, uh, Riverside. Yeah. Oh, wait, I went to UC Riverside. What? Yeah. yeah, I lived like off the, what was the stop? The freeway stop. I don't remember. I don't remember either. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, right I've, I've repressed those times oh. out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, yeah, Riverside and Orange County are so conservative, so conservative and no one talks about it. I would say Riverside, though, are like the working class conservatives, mm-hmm. too. So it's like a whole other layer of of complexity. But um, yeah, I grew up there. Um, my family was also Mormon. I grew up in a very religious Mormon family um, and was Mormon myself uh, until I was 18 and moved to New York. Um, and 
on the concept of or topic of activism, uh, some of my first uh, activist actions, some of my first demonstrations were with the Mormon church as a teenager when I was staunchly against equal marriage. So we've taken a pretty quick 180 since wow. then. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I mean, yeah, that is a huge 180. I mean, Mm. and and do you, and was that because of just like being with your family? Like you, you just felt like you needed to side with them Mm. or, Mm. or or the side of the church or, I mean, how, what, like why? Mm. I mean, it simply, it was pure indoctrination. Mm. Um, I think, and I, my family is still Mormon. I have so many people I love who are Mormon, um, and I wouldn't fault the church in its entirety, but I will say its culture does not foster critical thinking. Um, they really value trusting in the Lord and believing that things happen for a reason, um, and so you truly just follow the old white men who are in charge of the church telling you what to believe. Um, so at that time, I, I hadn't thought of the I haven't really thought through the issue specifically of, of equal ma- marriage. I don't know if you were living in California at the time of Prop 8 in yeah, 2008. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yep. I was a freshman in high school. Mm. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah, that's really rough. I mean, because, like, you're a teenager and trying to figure mm. yourself out, right? Mm-hmm. So is that when you, when, when did you know that you were trans or, mm. uh, you know, what, 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 like, when did you start feeling like, like something wasn't, the same about you mm. versus the heterosexual norm yeah. in our society. Yes, yes. Um, and I would say a cisgender heterosexual norm too. So mm-hmm. like heteronormativity has to do with sexuality and then we also have the norm around gender. So like cisnormativity is a term people use uh, to talk about the gender binary and gender stereotypes and expectations. Um, but at that time, due to like the level of indoctrination under which I was living, um, I had only known the words that people had called me. Um, and so growing up, that was like fag, mm. femme, uh, sissy boy, and gay. So mm-hmm. gay was the first, what I would consider queer marker that I tagged onto at 16. So about a year after I was participating in those protests and pickets on the side of the road. Um, and so I claimed gay first to talk about my sexuality. But I remember like the day, the week, the month that I came out, I'm still feeling something kind of like churning in my stomach, feeling like that wasn't the full story, that I wasn't yet fully authentic. I'd felt better and more open and more true to myself, but there was something um, that was a disconnect. And it wasn't um, until New York City I realized that was my gender. And you like growing up in a Mormon family, um, I mean, was it really t- difficult to talk to your family about mm. this? I can imagine, right? Yeah, it's, I um, am so privileged, so so fortunate to have the family I had. Um, the Mormon religion among LGBTQIA plus um, or queer and trans youth has one of the highest suicide rates in the country, yeah. um, specifically like within the context of Utah. So not only was I not in Utah, I was in another state exposed to other cultures and people Um, but my parents are truly amazing. They've always parented um, and taught us and operated through love, unconditional love in every capacity. Um, And so it was still extremely difficult to come out. It took me several years. I think I I knew when I was a young child, but then I really knew when I was like 11 or 12 um, as puberty kicked in and I was like, oh fuck, (laughs) this is not right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Puberty is always usually that 
that first like stage when mm. you start really kind of figuring out like what kind of person you are you mm. know and mm-hmm. um so they were so you were fortunate enough to have like a caring understanding family i wouldn't say from the beginning yeah, yeah. um i have an older sister whom i love i love both of my older sisters so much they're amazing um to this day they will beat up anyone who says anything about me i know i can rely on them Um, but as a teenager my oldest sister lauren um loved ellen degeneres always had gay best friends um was always watching like mtv things that were really subversive in our mormon culture um and actually left the mormon church at a young age to um one of the reasons being on its stance on homosexuality and equal marriage so i knew i could confide in her Uh, She wasn't living at home at the time, and so I was just with my parents. Um, My dad has a gay brother, so he had some experience, although my mom was a little more hesitant. Uh, Not that she um, didn't believe me or didn't support me, but that she didn't even... I don't think she could conceptualize what my life would be, one, outside of the church, but two, outside of a heteronormative marriage. yeah, because Mormon culture is so it's so normative and so specific. Like your entire life path is set before you before you're born. Yeah, I, I'm because I'm we're both from California, and um, I'm I'm a cis woman, but uh, I have a cousin who's who's a gay man, and he's in his forties, and he's never been able to come out to his mm. family. Mm. Um, I mean, we know because. We're of a ge- of a generation that I can understand, like right. I I I know a lot of people who identify as LGBTQIA, and I have friends that within the community. So I have a different understanding of these issues versus a lot of like my family who are older generation Asian. Mm. They're they come from pretty conservative backgrounds, right? And being gay is not it's not looked kindly upon in mm-hmm. a lot of these kind of like older conservative asian um communities my my particular um family like my mom and not my dad but my mom <laughs> she's a little bit more open-minded so i was really really lucky to have someone um as, as a parent that is more open-minded and um she knew she even knows that her nephew is gay but Mm. but my aunt and uncle they have no idea and 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 he's never come out and yeah it's just uh, growing up in orange county too i mean it was very predominantly white Mm. and it was you know i'm vietnamese so vietnamese americans didn't come to this country until you know 1970s my mom came after the war after like in 1975 and she's a refugee Mm. um so you know we're a fairly new group of immigrants and california has a lot of mexican immigrants right a lot of now a lot of asian immigrants uh but growing up like it was still very very predominantly white and it was very very you know especially orange county oh Oh yeah so conservative but I don't know if you followed California politics last election. 
Orange County went blue for oh, the first I did time. See that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's huge. Yeah, that's River- huge. Riverside is one of four counties out of like 52 counties um, in California that have never gone blue. Oh wow, it has stayed red. Yeah, Riverside's <laughs> very red. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. I remember I was there. I mean, I was in the university area, so like, yeah, I, you know, like I had a great college experience. I was, you know, but anytime like I were to venture outside of that university area like i definitely felt a lot of that uh, tension from the locals especially you know from the white locals who all view me and people that look like me as foreigners and outsiders right right? um so yeah i mean it, it i think a lot of why i love doing the work that i do and i and i you know and i I came out the way I did because of my background and where Mm. I grew up and you know I was I was super lucky enough to have uh, a good community of people like you know Vietnamese Americans and Mexicans and other immigrants Uh, but I also was exposed to so much racism in California Mm. and like you were just saying like we all think of California as just like wonderful liberal Mm. blue bubble and everything but No, it's actually quite conservative. Um, it's only blue because of LA and like San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And San Diego is not a very oh. blue place. Like, it is no, 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 oof. no. It is not actually. Um, my partner, he's from San Diego, mm. and he told me so many horrible stories of like what he went through because he's like a small Asian guy. So. Um, you know, there's just a lot of racism towards him because, because of his of of his smaller stature, people mm. always wanted to pick on him, and because he's Asian, like they would constantly, you know, say racist names to him. And it, it's it's funny how like we all view like California or New York, right, as mm-hmm. these liberal bubbles where racism would never be seen or homopho- or homophobia or transphobia would never be seen but actually i see it a lot mm, have you seen it here in new york yes absolutely i think oh there there are so many different neighborhoods so many different communities languages cultures kind of um shoved into a tiny space um Sometimes when I uh, am educating about gender and I talk about this concept of gender attribution, um, and so not necessarily what your gender is, how you express it, or um, yeah, how you feel about your gender, but how other people, depending on their time, their culture, their language, are perceiving and reading your gender. Um, I talk about how I pass at least 500 strangers from the time I exit my apartment in Brooklyn and I make it to the front door of my work in Lower Manhattan every morning. Mm. And so so I think the just concentration of people and ideologies, even if it is majority or more than half um, progressive or liberal, um, you will always run into someone. You will always get bad looks, scoffs, mm-hmm. um, etc. There was a lot there. I mean, I remember instances of anti-gay violence happening in New York. You know, a lot of um, I remember the stories in the, in the news about about people getting beaten, you know, and, and you'd think that in a city that is supposed to be so welcoming, right, to the LGBTQIA community that this wouldn't happen here. But 
I mean, it does. And and this is a good kind of segue into like my next question about, um, well, what I want to talk about with the recent violence against trans people mm-hmm. all over the country, right? Mm-hmm. And especially trans black women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's th- there's a lot of deep seated hate and a lot of deep seated um, ignorance. Right when it comes to uh, trans folk, and especially when it comes to trans Black people, mm-hmm. um, because there's already such a, you know, an anti-Black sentiment in this country, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, top it all off with anti-trans, anti-gay, like you know, homophobic and transphobic like feelings that this country has. Um, just, I mean, that's just a double whammy right there. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and we're seeing like record numbers of people getting killed mm-hmm. and, and hurt. And this is so alarming, right? And I just, I, I want to know, like, what can we do? What can we do about this? Like, is there anything we can do? And, you know, in your work as an educator and, and a teacher, like, what do you tell people when we are forced to confront these difficult issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, history is some is a really critical tool for us to use in analyzing and understanding and trying to move past these issues. I think a huge problem we have contemporarily and, and even in the in the last few decades is that we continue to strive for liberation or equal rights or inclusion, whatever it may be, of LGBTQIA plus people as a single issue problem, as if LGBTQIA people aren't also people of color, aren't also black, aren't also undocumented, aren't also sex workers, aren't also um, living in poverty. Um, and so if we look back at like the, the origins of what we now know as the modern LGBTQIA plus global movement of Stonewall and the Compton's Cafeteria riots in San Francisco, um, Stonewall being in 1969, we see some of the, the greatest leaders, the most kind of venerated right now um, by whether that be through the kind of commodification of their stories by, by large LGBTQIA plus organizations, um, are Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two um, trans women of color. Yeah, um, and and I feel like because history is always whitewashed, mm. those two are always just like forgotten and Absolutely. not talked about enough, right? In, in in a way, they they are being elevated a lot for people to kind of like purport their wokeness. Like, oh, I can name two trans women of color, but they're not <laughs> talking about Miss Major Griffin Gracie. They're not talking about all of the other um, queer and trans people of color, mainly like queer and trans femmes and women who are part of the Compton's Cafeteria Riots who started Stonewall. Um, but if we go back to like the roadmap that they set for us for activism, what they were fighting for from the beginning, when throwing those first bricks at Stonewall, those first cocktails, like smashing police car windows with their heels, they were fighting against first and foremost police violence. They're fighting against the criminalization of sex work. They were fighting against like the the stark realities of homelessness and violence that LGBTQ young people, especially LGBTQIA plus young people. Uh, were facing at that time. They were street kids. They were engaged in sex work. They were um, part of those communities that I s- 
that we still see, you know, 50 years later, we're celebrating this 50th anniversary, we still don't see centered in national narratives of LGBTQIA plus equality or rights. We're not talking about sex work. We're not talking about homelessness enough. We're not talking about black trans women enough um, who, who are being murdered at such dangerous rates. Um, I don't know if there is an increase. I think it has always been bad. Mm. Um, I just think some people are finally paying attention for the first time, um, or these are finally reaching media outlets that are mainstream and people are able to access and learn from. Um, A lot like um, police brutality in this country, mm, right? Yeah, I mean, this has been happening Since well. the beginning. It, it has it's never. It's been happening for the longest time. And so like, oh, it's only now with technology that we're able to see it happening. Mm-hmm. Well, some of, some of us have seen it forever. Some of us right. have lived it, right? Right. It's, those of us in positions of privilege who needed, you know, needed that to, to believe that it was happening or to learn about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But even with, like, the video footage and even mm-hmm. with, like, this, like, you know, all the proof that this is happening, this has been happening, it feels like nothing is ever done about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the state evolves mechanisms of surveillance and denial of namely like white supremacist violence and queer and transphobia um they're able to kind of like evolve with the system the second police cameras came out they knew with, they came up with new technologies and mechanisms to deny that that footage or to eliminate that footage or create ways that people can access that footage they're always really adapting in order to to stay on top and um, resist any form of rebellion or resistance yeah eh. It's just, it just really is just so disheartening. And it's just like, it's, it's, sometimes I feel like, what can we do about it? And, you know, I, I, I feel like the only way that I can contribute and, you know, and, and do something that I feel is going to be having an impact is the work that I'm doing now. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's telling stories. It's, um, you know, sharing with people, trying to educate people as much as possible. And, you know, that kind of like, I, I want to ask you more about your role as an educator and a teacher. Um, you know, how did you get involved in teaching and education? Um, because, I mean, education is so important, but we place no value on it. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a reason. There's yeah. a reason. Um, so, yeah, so how did you, how did you, um, you know, get involved with teaching? And what, what made you want to be a teacher? Yeah, um, I grew up with parents as teachers. My mom ran a preschool out of our garage. My dad taught almost every grade of elementary school, now works in a school district. Now my mom works in special education. My older sister is an English teacher. Um, And so education as a form of work and labor and also just passion has been deeply rooted in my family for a long time. So I've always been a part of that kind of um, work Um, Coming out of undergrad, I found myself with a very uh, nebulous global (laughs) studies uh, liberal arts degree, (laughs) um, which I appreciate so much due to like the knowledge I was able to acquire and the people I was able to be around and learn from. Um, But I also came out of college with so much rage and anger, finally learning about systems of oppression, systems and structures of oppression and violence that I have been affected by or been contributing to my entire life, um, feelings that I've had forever that I've never been able to name and really articulate. 
Um, but I feel like I received that education, did some organizing and, and grew as an activist or an organizer in college and then was pushed out and was just kind of like left to see the world. Um, and in, since then I've decided that I think my greatest, considering my skills that I believe I have and I've had the opportunity to develop, I think education is so key. Um, intra-community education, educating elder LGBTQ IA plus people, um, also being um, someone who tries to educate myself on racial justice um, and help bring other white people through that process too because it is such a process and also requires so much labor that so many people should not have to hold when they're also facing those systems and structures and experiences in their everyday life. Um, so I think education is something I have a background in, it's something I'm passionate about, um, and is, is what I think is my current form of activism right now um, in the world through formal work, um, but then also through, uh, sometimes through social media, sometimes just through conversations, um, mm -hmm. through joining different activist circles and, and pushing things, um, and also in my family and Mormon culture too. Um, I feel like I'm stepping into so many different communities right now and I'm trying to just like leave leave messages ask questions push things and then step out and come back um yeah I have like a very similar um kind of uh experience with you I I I'm actually uh a lawyer as well oh I went to God. law school I know I know I, I had an Asian mom and she forced me to be a like doctor okay. or lawyer okay. and I mean, I wanted to be a photographer from mm. when I was at UC Riverside. Um, I, I like took art classes and all my professors and my peers told me like I had this gift for it. But, you know, being in an immigrant family, I, I w ended up going to law school um, because, you know, our parents want us to pursue professional, practical careers. Yeah, yeah, they want the best. I know. Um, but anyway, so um, I as much as I also appreciated my legal education i i hated being a lawyer i didn't <laughs> have any like i didn't feel like i um was ever meant to be a lawyer i i never felt any uh, passion for the work and you know i've struggled to find a job i couldn't find any job but i did do some like pro bono legal observing during occupy wall street and that was um you know when i really like dove into activism but before then during my legal education i finally learned about all these things that our history books don't teach us mm -hmm. when we're kids right mm -hmm. like i learned about chinese exclusion act Oof. and and i realized like that is such a has a, such a direct personal relationship to me because i'm asian american and you know i learned about the fact that Abraham Lincoln didn't care if slavery was, you know, abolished. Mm -hmm. He only cared about keeping the state together. Mm -hmm. So really it wasn't about like, you know, we, 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 we worship Abraham Lincoln as the president who, you know, abolished slavery. Well, actually, no, it's not quite that simple, right? You know, as it's if like he was the single agent in making yeah, that happen. It's like as if he was the only one who decided like, yeah, no, slavery is <sighs> bad. We're not going to do this anymore. <sighs> actually, no, he um, was very much a racist. And he, w he, he had said in many of his letters that if, if 
slavery, if the if like the legal like if slavery being legal and continuing meant that the state of the union could stay together, he would have voted to keep slavery. Mm. So, so like there there was not there's nothing in our like history books when we're learning as a kid like when we're in, in kids and you know in school like telling us this stuff. They're telling us this very white, like we talked about, we mentioned earlier, how like our history is always whitewashed, mm-hmm. always. You know, like I didn't really learn about the Trail of Tears until it, w- it went until much later mm-hmm. when, um, you know, I was in law school and, and during my constitutional law class, I read about all these cases that, you know, like were the beginnings of our civil rights laws, and and I was just like wow how come i never knew about this before mm-hmm. and it's just because our education our history is constantly whitewashed it's constantly you know um kind of glorified and and sugar-coated right yeah. it's like yeah. always sugar-coated and it's it's like how how do we not only get education but how do we get better education right because right now it doesn't seem like the education that we have obviously is lacking in in that like we don't have enough of it mm-hmm. but it's also lacking in that it's not the right education it's exactly. not better education yep. you know it's like we're we're struggling against so much here and how do we get better education mm-hmm. i i think the answer is outside of the public education system because yeah. it is a system that's sponsored and run by the government mm-hmm. um, and the state has an investment in not telling its true story. Exactly. It, our constitution yeah. and our country and this whole logic of make America great again, what America <laughs> is, hinges on liberty, justice, freedom. If you know in even an ounce of U.S. history, not a single one of those three tenants were present at any point from its construction, from its inception to today. Mm-hmm. There is so much blood. There's so much ugh, stuff that, that doesn't even need to be said. We know we know what has happened and what is happening and how things have not ended, um, that this country was built on and continues to be built on. Colonialism is not over. Forms of slavery are not over. They they live in the mass incar- in yes, incarceration system. Yes, yes. Um, and... It's just yeah. taken on a new form. Exactly. Right? Like yeah, the state the state evolves to continue its mechanisms of surveillance and control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it has an investment in purporting this myth that it is benevolent, um, that it's the home of the home of the brave, land of the free, the free, whatever they say. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's there's so much to impact. So I think education outside of that system, there's a lot of activism and push uh, within the formal education system, which I think is so rad. Um, many of which coming from like educators of color, queer and trans educators who are amending their syllabi and amending their curricula in order to include these stories um, and actually speak to the students that they have in their classroom. But I think with the rise of social media and technology, there are so many other platforms for education. Mm-hmm. A young person opens their phone when they wake up in the morning and scrolls through feeds and they digest dozens and dozens of pieces of information um, coming from different news outlets, from Twitter, from Instagram, from celebrities, from in- influencers. There's so many ways we digest information. So Especially with the internet now, yes. right? Yes. I mean, technology and social media, it's changed. So that that's actually like uh, the ne- next thing I want to talk about is, um, you know, I'm uh, of a generation. I'm like, 
I'm not. I'm like what they say, Generation X Y or something okay, like that. Okay. Where You're like, like in the middle. Uh, yeah, I'm in the middle. Where like, uh, so I'm 35, and yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't grow up with technology. I didn't grow up with the internet. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't have any internet. Right. It wasn't until I was maybe like in later high school. I started to finally um, get on the internet, and at that time it was AOL. <laughs> it was dial-up AOL. Um, so you know, growing up, like I didn't, I didn't have like a lot of resources. I didn't have like, you know, ways to learn besides the regular mainstream media that I was fed on television, or you know. Um, or whatever, whatever church was trying to convert me to whatever religion that they were trying to convert me to. Like, it was, it was just always just like people and and television kind of feeding me mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. information that that they want to feed me. And I wasn't really able to seek out my own information. And you know, I I see such a huge difference between me, like between people like my generation and younger people who do have access to the internet and have access to all these resources, I think young people are 10 times smarter than I am. Uh, mm, They're so mm -hmm. smart. And they have more access to more more knowledge at a younger age. Yes. Digested so much. So much. And, 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 you know, a lot of habits that I grew up with, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to fix, right? Like, so I, c- I really want to um, get into talking about vocabulary with you because um, when I was young, like growing up in Southern California, Orange County especially, I, like very kind of like, a, like I was kind of in that whole surfer culture and I say dude and I say man and I say you guys all the time. Like I, mm. I, I'm still like constantly like trying to remember like, okay, um, you know, I need to, I need to, need to rethink my vocabulary and, and and try to change my habits of saying you guys um even though i still say it i still say it because it's just like a force of habit but when i'm around you know like when i'm around people that i'm meeting for the first time or i don't know what their gender is you know i am trying to consciously think about like okay news like gender neutral words as as much as i can um, so I'm trying to say like everyone instead of you guys or uh, you all instead of like, hey, dudes, you know, like it, it's 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 kind of about figuring out, right, like what words we can supplement. Um, mm-hmm. So what are some good ways that you would teach people to learn how to do this? Because it's hard because I, I I've been. You know, I I've said you guys before, and you know I had people be like, oh, that's 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 bad. You can't be using that. And then you know, I've, I had people like attack me for saying you guys, and I was like, uh, like I'm try- I'm trying, like I'm you know, it's just like a force of habit because I grew up like in a certain area where you guys was always said. Um, but I want to learn like how can we better. Uh, change our vocabulary and and speak in a more gender neutral way like what what tips do you have for people yeah um so i think generally the tactic is to um neutralize gender or take it out of situations that are unnecessary phrases um parts of sentences 
um, that are also really silly how we use gender sometimes, um, but also at the same time with recognition that there are trans people who do use binary pronouns like he or him or do identify as a guy or ma'am, um, and those are affirming and important for them, and they mm-hmm. should be able to use those. Um, uh, I, I do know one tactic in replace of the you guys, because I'm also from California, so I've got that <laughs> California bias, um, and I've been working through it. Um, I say y'all or you all um, mm-hmm. or friends or mm-hmm. folks. Um, I think y'all has is yeah queer people are getting real southern, which feels like Get real reverse southern. appropriation, <laughs> like from a community that has historically not been very queer accepting or tolerant or inclusive. Uh, we're taking the y'all from them, which I think is kind of beautiful. <laughs> which is, yeah, it's um, or at least employing it, and I think that is helpful. Um, as far as like pronouns go, you said earlier, sometimes you don't know someone's gender. Um, and I would say you never know anyone's gender, um, because it's not something that you can read, um, or see. It's something that is felt and lived inside a person. Wow. That's actually a really good way to think about it. I actually have never thought about it like that. Right. Yeah. 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 I think... Um, I think it's helpful to personalize it um, and realize we all have our own journeys in relationship to gender. Even Mm -hmm. if we identify as cis, we have different experiences of masculinity and femininity and policing and Mm -hmm. bullying and and ways we've come into our gender expression and our identity. Um, So I think it's really going back to like basic concepts of autonomy and self-determination. When you meet someone just ask for their pronouns. Learn more about them. Um, that, th- it's as simple as that then. Yep. Just be like, hey, what are your pronouns? Yep. I, and it'll and take like two seconds to mm-hmm. ask and answer, right? Yep. And, and if it's a scenario where you're not comfortable to do that or you don't feel like it's the right time, you can always check their social media. People put their pronouns in social media, which is also a great move for cis people too, just to put she, her, he, him to kind of normalize the sharing mm-hmm. of pronouns and email signatures and your Instagram uh a description bio and your Twitter bio. Um, you can also talk to close friends who you know um, may be able to give you an answer if you don't feel like confronting. Um, there are some trans and non-binary people who don't want to have that conversation too. So so it's tricky. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, I think it's going back to not making assumptions um, and really coming from a good place. Um, yeah. It really is that easy. And you know, I, I think it's just this he- like people just feel hesitant to, you know, change, right? Because of their their own personal habits. And you know what? I mean, you just got to get over that, mm. right? Yeah. Like, just get over that. And it, I mean, if it's going to if it's going to help others feel more exactly. comfortable mm-hmm. like why wouldn't you just take the time to say hey what are your pronouns like it takes like a second yeah, right? yeah. And, it, and it's the best way to really see someone in right. their full capacity and really honor them and be honored um in sharing your pronouns and your identity and sharing parts of you with them i think is is a beautiful act that um, is really beautiful yeah, yeah that's really beautiful and but but like you know i I, I know I, as being as someone who actively, right, works on trying to better myself, um, you know, I know that I will do my best, but it just, like, I will, like, how can we get the others 
to get on board like what i'm trying to get at is okay what's going on with the straight pride thing okay like i i don't understand any we're not giving them airtime are these people like the all lives matter people like what is going on absolutely Uh, since when is there straight pride i don't want to be like some sausage fest (laughs) bullshit it's not worth it i've never even heard of this like and it's literally just these people who get upset that that they think like immigrants or people of color or lgbtqia Mm -hmm. folk or you know all these other these groups of people that have always been historically marginalized by the Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. suddenly they're they're just demanding equal rights and (laughs) like no 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 no, we we can't have you having equal rights that's Mm -hmm. that's that's not Mm -hmm. gonna play out for us because we're cis white people and (laughs) yes It is challenging um, because it goes back to the power of education. People are and act and believe based on their education, what they've been exposed to, the language they know how to use, the feelings they're also know, they know how to feel too. Like they're just going off of what they know. Um, And someone who grew up very conservative and grew up homophobic, grew up transphobic before even knew what that was. Um, I know what it's like to go through that process. So I think it's a true art of meeting people where they're at. If that is something you are emotionally capable to do, because there are a lot of people who who aren't ready to have that conversation. Um, what a huge transformation for you, by the way. Yeah. And and you know, I can't I can't not ask you about the you know about religion and how it is such um it, how it does seem to constantly have a say in like what is right and what is wrong and you know growing up from a religious family like uh, i'm i mean i'm not very religious i grew up buddhist but i'm not Mm. i'm pretty much an atheist um you know for me it's like why why is it that these groups of religions or religious people um are judging your community but why like i actually really want to know because i don't know a lot about religion to be honest i i do know that i had friends growing up who were christian or catholic and their parents tried to convert me and i was just like fuck you i'm <laughs> not i'm like a t- i'm like a little buddhist child like that was me that was me bringing my yeah. book of mormon to reset no, back in california mm-hmm. like those mormon missionaries coming That's to right. your door mm, yeah they came all the time and they told me i was going to hell and i was like <sighs> i don't believe in hell because i don't yeah. believe in god like you know, mm-hmm. and 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 there is always like what what's that group that I hate that group I, I don't even want to say their name okay, but you know okay. there's groups of of very religious people that are very very anti-gay very yes. homophobic yes. very transphobic why? Oof, I mean, is it in the Bible? I mean, there are so many things in the Bible <laughs> that they don't care about, um, such as you know love your neighbor, but. Um, I think, again, like history is such a useful tool in understanding these systems. And we have to think about the history of freedom of religion, um, which is, I believe, one of the greatest myths of the United States, of the settler state mechanism of the, of the United States of America, um, is religious freedom, which was built on the actual like removal of people, the des- desecration of lands, the enslavement of people. Um, if we think of people who who were taken as workers of this uh, or slaves of the state and peoples whose land was lost, they held onto spiritualities. They had religions, they had beliefs. All of these were decimated in order to create and, and create domination for like Christian ideology. Mm. Um, 
So I think like white supremacy, the state, um, patriotism is all written into like the blueprint of Christianity. So it's so deeply embedded in our country. If we think about the suppression of Islam, of Muslim religion um, in the United States that purports to have freedom of religion and be all about freedom uh, of expression. Um, I think it, I think it all goes back to that. Um, and queer phobia is um, staunchly American. America yeah. was built on the elimination of queer um, and two-spirit indigenous peoples and uh, queer epistemologies across the world through imperialism. So the elimination of like queer logics and ways of being have always been tied to the process of settler colonialism and like the creation of the state, which is all about the dominance of Christianity um, and democracy and capitalism and all these kind of oppressive systems that we're still seeing are in play and in dominance today. Oof. That's heavy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, 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 I am, like I said, I'm not really religious, and I, you know, I'm pretty much an atheist. Although I grew up, grew up Buddhist, um, but to me, it's just, it's just like leave everyone alone, let them do whatever they want. Like, why, why are you getting into my business? It's the same, you know, argument with abortion, right? Like, well, why do you care what I do with my body? Um, it's the same, like, why do you care if I'm lesbian or gay or bisexual or trans or intersex or, you know, or queer? Like, why do you care? How does it affect you? And I, and I think it just comes back to fear. Yeah. The fear mm-hmm. of the unknown, fear of people who aren't like you. It's the same as fear of immigrants, right? Yeah. Um, fear that, that they're dirty or criminals or rapists like as if there aren't criminals there aren't in the white house the <laughs> exactly. like logic of criminality is so gross but so. i mean that's how that's how the conservatives and republicans like to you know vilify immigrants is that yes. immigrants are criminals and from what i see you know that same group they like to identify people who are from the LGBTQIA community as dirty and gross and Mm -hmm. sinful, right? Um, So they always try to stereotype our groups into these negative things, um, almost as if to just divert attention away from themselves. Yes. Because It's projection. It's just projection. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, look at all the mass shootings that's happening in our country and who are they committed by? White men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a crisis of masculinity and not yeah. in the way that men rights, men's rights activists are talking about it but in a way that like masculinity, um, cis masculinity, white masculinity is so dangerous. So it toxic. Has caused every war it created colonialism it roots white supremacy but at the very same time it creates internal battles within oneself too Mm -hmm. like in as someone who who experienced a form of socialization as a as a white young man especially in the mormon church i remember digesting so many of those messages being taught i wasn't allowed to cry being taught i wasn't allowed to sit with my legs crossed that i had to police every part of my body my emotion my interaction with people um and that kind of violence and policing does not equate to the violence that, let's say, white masculinity um, causes. However, I think we need to think about how how they are imprisoned within themselves. Masculinity is a prison. 
Um, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like what you were just saying, like how our society teaches men that they have to be, you know, they have to be strong and uh, that they can't show sadness or they can't show like any kind of like emotion because then they're just sissy boys, quote unquote, mm-hmm. right? Like what you were called when you were a kid. And, um, you know, and, and it's this like, like if you're going to keep those emotions caged in like that, Oh my God! I mean, it's gonna explode, and that's what well, that's what we're seeing. Everywhere we're seeing a product of. I mean, uh, it's definitely an issue of gun control, in my opinion, as well. But it's also mainly an issue of toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and how it is affecting the mental well-being of our citizens. And because of this culture that that we live in, this culture of you know not letting like people really be themselves and kind of caging those emotions of course it's gonna lash out of course people are gonna lash out of course it's gonna come out and it's gonna explode in dangerous ways so i think you know we need to be obviously talking all about gun control but also about like how can we change this toxic you know society that we live in like this mm-hmm. toxic culture of uh of not letting people just feel <laughs> yeah. you know and it's just it's just so mind-boggling to me that yeah. um that we've done this to to, to our people yeah we've absolutely. done this we did this to, yeah. to them yeah. and we caused this you know all these mass shootings we caused this yeah. it's american culture yeah. i mean american culture in general just causes we're like the number one like country in the entire world with all these mass shootings right and it's a combination of a lot of things yes, um it's multifaceted yeah multifaceted um but so i want to just wrap up now and tell people you know where they can find you and your work and um you know what you do like find out how maybe if someone wants to get in touch with you what's the best way so could you just share some of that information Hmm. yes so my phone number just kidding (laughs) um i uh, don't believe in twitter so i'm not on there i don't do twitter either yeah hold on (laughs) i had it for a week i posted like me in a skirt in front of the white house and talked about colonialism and then it like went through the far right streams of Twitter and I was basically just like bullied off Twitter which is fine whatever I don't need to be there um, if you can find me on Instagram it's at Jamie J-A-M-E Y-Y-Y-Y-Y-Y-Y that's seven Y. Seven it was y. the only one available <laughs> and I can't I can't shut it down um, um, yeah if people have questions about non-binary identity, trans identity, gender in general, um, I love talking about it and it's something that I do feel like I'm at a point in my life that I have the capacity to talk through in a 101 intro way Um, and yeah I think social media is such a great resource Um, I'm no one important so you don't need to follow me but I would go to um I would search hashtags like trans is beautiful, one of them, they, them, um, to follow um, people who are all over social media who are non-binary and trans, specifically black trans women, um, and and just get like a piece of their brilliance um, and also find ways to support them. They, they post their GoFundMes and their PayPals and their Venmos too. So um, don't just extract, but, but try to make that as reciprocal as possible. 
thank you again for being here, Jamie. This was really, really informative, and I had a great time getting to know you and talking to you. I hope you can come back one day. Yeah, let's hang out. All right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. My next guest on a special episode for Pride is Trevon Mayers. He serves as the Director of Policy and Community Outreach at the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center, where he is responsible for leading the development and implementation of the advocacy program's legislative and policy objectives. Prior to joining the center, Travon worked at Common Cause as the Assistant Director of the New York Chapter, where he oversaw several issue-based advocacy campaigns, which included voting and elections, ethics in government and civic engagement. Travon holds a master's degree in public administration from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and a bachelor's degree in public health and psychology, as well as a certificate in culture, health, and science for the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much for being here, Travon. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Cindy. Um, let's talk about the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center first mm -hmm. and foremost. Yeah. Like, um, so just tell me a bit about the organization and the mission and the work that you do. Yeah, for sure. So um, the LGBT Center is a 35-year-old community organization. Um, it was really started um, at the height of the AIDS epidemic uh, in New York. Um, and it was created from the idea that community members really just wanted a space where they could share resources and be affirmed and be around people like themselves um, and get programming that was tailored to their needs. Um, and so today, I don't think anyone could have imagined that the center would turn into what it has turned into. Um, in terms of just the amount of people that we're able to reach, the amount of community that we're able to engage. Every week, we see about 6,000 people wow. come through the doors of the center. That's so amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. And it could be anything from um, folks that want to come in to use uh, a gender-affirming bathroom or folks that come in for specific programming around substance use, um, we have a youth program, we have health and wellness programs, and I oversee our advocacy program called Rise Out. Um, so we offer a host of different options. Uh, we are the second largest LGBT community center in the world. Second largest? Second largest. <gasps> Wait, um, what's the first? LA. But oh. we <laughs> <laughs> We're the largest on the East Coast. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, right. I'm so honored of to course. have you here then. I mean, that's so that's so wonderful, really. Thank that you. is that's such a such a wonderful resource for people in the LGBTQIA community. And, for sure. Um, yeah. So, sorry. Keep going and, and talk more about the organization. No, um, I think that it's it's interesting. So we're the, the second largest in the world, but the first largest on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, but in terms of just programming, we have so many uh, different offerings. And I uh, started at the center, it's going on two years, specifically uh, to develop our advocacy program. So mm -hmm. I oversee um, our advocacy initiative. It is a statewide initiative. And it's exciting because we took a lot of time in terms of trying to get a, a sense of what community needs. Um, there's a lot of smart people that work at the center. We have 100 plus employees. Um, but when we approached advocacy, we didn't want to say, 
here's what we thought community might need. We really wanted to take time to talk to folks, to talk to stakeholders and other thought leaders to make sure that we had a platform that was reflective of community. Um, and that takes time. And so in the first couple of months of existing after having all of those conversations, uh, we have been successful. We have had some early successes this year. Um, prior to this year, New York State, a lot of people might not notice, but um, New York State had not passed any specific LGBTQ affirming laws in seven years. Wow. Right. Really? Um, okay. And so after the 2016 elections, there was a lot of folks who really were just concerned about what the future might look like in the wake of the elections. Um, and knowing that we are a community center and we exist to serve people and be responsive to their needs, um, really thought about what it would entail to get this program off the ground um, and how much work we had to put into it. And so all of the things that I had mentioned about sort of making sure that um, our ideas are being led by community and our centering community, that has been really important to sort of embed into the advocacy program thus far. Wow, and, and as the director, right, of mm -hmm. like the advocacy programs, um, you know, how, what drew you to, to the center and why did you want to get involved in advocacy in particular? Because I think it's really tough, mm -hmm. right, doing this kind of work, right? It's, yeah. it's very, very tough. Yeah, it's taxing, but it's also rewarding, mm -hmm. um, specifically for me this year. So I moved to New York two and a half years ago, and my first job here was at an organization called Common Cause. Um, it's also a nonprofit that exists really um, to run campaigns that give uh, people like more access to democracy. So a lot of it focuses on voting reform and voting rights and ethics and government, um, but a lot of advocacy work. So while I was at Common Cause, um, I helped start a coalition called Let New York Vote, and it was all about making sure that New York State had an early voting period. Um, up until this year, New York was one of only 13 states in the country that did not have an early voting period. Um, and that just was sort of like drew me to this idea that just at a foundational level, giving people access to democracy so that they can advocate on issues that they care about is really important. Um, and so when the center was starting its advocacy initiative, when sort of building it up from the ground, I thought that I was um, well suited to sort of do that because in my prior work, I had done a lot of that coalition building efforts um, and making sure that it was grassroots. Um, and that's something that I was happy to bring to the center as I started with um, our Rise Up. Uh, initiative as well. And they must have seen something really great in you, right? To like to make you so. a director. <laughs> oh my God. You're, you're, you're so like, like you're such a role model. Oh, you really are. You. Um, and being, you know, a young person of color too, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's really important to be putting um, young people and especially people of color in these kind of jobs where you're leading and you're showing by example and um, it, it allows other people like yourself, like people that look like you and people your age too, to like look up to something, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I really want to get a sense of who you are as a person. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about, you know, like where your back, what your background is, where you grew up and everything and, you know, what led you to this path? Yeah, um, I would say 
a lot of lived experience. So I am an immigrant. Uh, my parents immigrated here when they were 30. Um, and I came here when I was one year old. Um, <laughs> uh, from where, if you don't mind me asking? Guyana, oh, okay. um, on the northern coast of South America. Okay. Um, and so I'm also black, also gay. Mm-hmm. Um, but when my parents, because they were... Uh, new to the country, did not have a lot of the language to sort of identify a lot of things that I was going through when I was um, discovering myself, I will say. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that it gave me a perspective on voices that I think are important to be included in the conversation. And like a lot of times when I look at whether it be organizations or other advocacy efforts, I always look to see who is not in the room and how can we open up space to get them into the room? Because I was that person that always wondered like, how come no one has this perspective? And you know, being an immigrant, I'm always sort of um, mindful of the challenges that it, that it just entails to just like live in this country. Um, and that's when I see things on the news now, I'm like, of course, like we need to stand up for immigrants as well. Cause, um, we're not free until we're all free. No one is free until we're all free. Um, and I've always kept that perspective with me, but it was, uh, informed a lot by my lived experience and wanting to find community of folks that looked like me. Um, I think I went through a period where it was just difficult to find folks that were like me and when you're growing up and you don't see yourself reflected whether it be in media or just like in everyday life on your, in your neighborhood in your school um oftentimes you just start to question like is there something wrong with me am i doing this so finding community especially moving to new york has been such a amazing experience because i feel like here people can be whoever they want to be and that's the beauty of i think that's how life should be, right? Um, And I love that the center celebrates that perspective. Like we, our mission is really just to create space where people can live healthy and successful lives just being who they are. Um, And so that's what led me to the center specifically because it created that space that I knew that I was longing for when I was growing up. And speaking of like just, you know, your background as an immigrant and as a black person and as a gay person and thinking about how all these, you know, issues are intersectional, right? We all, that, that is why we have to, you know, think about intersectionality when we're thinking about, you know, LGBTQIA rights and we're thinking about immigrant rights, we're thinking about workers' rights, we're thinking about women's rights and we're thinking about the labor movement, we're thinking about healthcare, we're thinking about education, we're mm-hmm. thinking about prison mm-hmm. ma- like reform and mass incarceration yes. and police brutality. I mean, mm-hmm. these are all <laughs> things linked together. Right. Um, it, it is the product, it, not the product, it's the, these are consequences of white supremacy and this constant xenophobic Mm -hmm. (laughs) attitude that we have like this xenophobic attitude that we have in this country right now it it transcends to homophobia and transphobia as well and you know it's it's so important to me especially as an activist and um as a woman of color to get behind all these other issues Mm -hmm. because we are stronger together and we're stronger in numbers. Yeah. And, you know, they, meaning 
the white supremacists. <laughs> they know that. Right. And that's why they always try to divide us. Mm-hmm. And they always try, because it's divide and conquer, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's really important to talk about how we can all work together and how we need to get behind all these different causes. Um, you know, you, you can't be a, a gay person and not get behind Black Lives Matter right. or get behind women's rights or, you know, p- you know get behind these other issues. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're so connected. Yeah. And um, that th- that's why it's, it's really important for me um, to connect with people like yourself yeah. who have these very diverse lived-in experiences, mm-hmm. as you said. And... Um, I love being inspired by by the people that are like you, you know, mm-hmm. the people that um, are s- so diverse in their range of experiences in life. And um, I, I, I really thank you again for being here with me today because this is this has been like a this is a really great like learning process for me, yeah, too. You know, for sure. Um, so I want to like um, focus a little bit back on your work in advocacy. So mm-hmm. what have you seen um, that has like resonated with you the most? And and what do you see like works and what doesn't mm-hmm. with people? For sure. Um, I think going back to what you said, it's this idea. One thing that I think that does not work is treating uh, or operating in silos, right? So oftentimes we look at an issue and we say, that's just an LGBTQ issue, or that's just an issue that affects black people, or that's just an issue that affects immigrants. Um, And I think the more that we can get into thinking about sort of like the collective um, impact that we can have if we are working together, um, and really pushing against the narrative that LGBTQ people are a monolith because they are not. LGBTQ people are people. Um, and they can be immigrants, they can be black, they can be women, they can be any other identifier. They that could you be can non-binary. Right, <laughs> non-binary. They can be trans. They can be any other identifier that you can think of. So um, treating issues as sort of like a singular issue that only affects this one segment is something that um, at the center and with our advocacy program, we have been really mindful to push against um, as well as also making sure that we are centering the people who are most impacted. And that looks like um, trans women of color, oftentimes, who are at a very high risk of being murdered in this country. Oh, the violence against trans women of color right now is is so, so disheartening and really troubling. Right, specifically black trans women of color. And so every opportunity that we have to uplift and amplify those voices I think it's important for us to take it as well. And I think that's something that I have learned um, just working at the center, um, making sure that we don't operate in silos and also making sure that we are uplifting the folks that are most marginalized. It's really like a gift that we live in the city and there are resources like the center, um, you know, and, and we are very, very privileged, right, to have this here. But what about places that don't have Mm -hmm. the center? I mean, I'm thinking about the, you know, the young LGBTQIA folk who are just learning about themselves and living in, I don't know, say Alabama Mm -hmm. or Texas or Tennessee or, you know, a lot of these um, conservative states that maybe aren't as friendly to the community. Um, You know, what, what about them? What can we do for them? So I think that it's important, like something that 
kind of keeps me going is remembering that everything that we do in New York, it does matter. It does set an example that other folks in other states can take. Uh, most recently, uh, we worked on a campaign around banning what's called the gay trans panic defense. Um, it's basically a legal strategy that was uh, legal in New York, um, as well as many other states where someone can claim that because of your assumed identity, um, if someone thought that you were LGBTQ, they can attack you, they could even murder you, <gasps> and they can use that as a oh. defense to reduce uh, the sentence for their crime in court. And that was legal in New York uh, up until a couple weeks ago when we passed a ban. But New York was only the sixth state to do so, right? And so we're hoping that like, once New York, a state like New York gets behind these policies and has drawn awareness to issues like this, that it could cause a ripple effect in other states. And we're also totally open to giving folks and other activists the tools and like sharing best practices and like what we have learned, messaging guidance that we have learned sort of like as we went uh, about what resonates with people and how they can um, take action. And I think that's really important too. And I always am mindful that Although I am fighting for uh, policy changes in New York State, everything that we do here has a ripple effect across the country. That's really important then. And being the second largest center uh, for LGBTQ people in the country and the largest in the East Coast, I mean, mm -hmm. that you must have like a profound effect on, on people. Yeah. Do you get that a lot? Do you get responses from people like, telling you, you know, how much the center has done for them and, and the impact that it's made in their lives? Mm -hmm. One of the, um, like, a really important tool that we integrated in our advocacy work was around um, having a, a mobile advocacy network. Um, and so... That's so smart because the internet has just changed everything. I yeah, think. for yeah. sure. And, yeah. like, no one can have imagined that, like, it'll be, like, using digital tools would play such an integral role in advocacy 10 years ago, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we do have a mobile advocacy network and whenever there's an opportunity for folks to take action, they get like a text message. And it's also made really simple because you can just reply call to call your your legislator, right? Wow. Um, and things like that has been really integral in our own advocacy efforts, but then we also receive responses um, like most recently when we sent out a text that said, we did it, um, we passed the ban on the gay trans panic defense, getting responses from community that were just so happy um, and felt so comforted by all of the work that we do. That type of response is like really what keeps me going. So yeah, we've had a lot of good responses from community and everything that we're doing, we hope to just continue to get better at it um, and learn more as we go. You know, there's always room for us to improve and to learn from folks. Definitely. And and I think, um, you know, just having, I know for myself and like the work that I do, just knowing that I'm impacting somebody out there, mm -hmm. I, I think that's what makes it all worth it. You know, like a lot of the, a lot of my activism work, like it's not like I get paid for anything and I don't. You know, I just kind of do this because I, I want to share stories and I want to um, be a person to kind of elevate, you know, others and give them a platform to tell their stories. So I think just having just any impact on somebody out there, it means the world to me. And yeah. um, I, it, it, I, I can only imagine for 
to center how much of an impact you all are making. And so it's really important to have, you know, resources like Mm -hmm. like you and um, especially for the community that, you know, a lot of people talk about how, oh, like, you know, gay rights is now that you all have gay marriage, it's like, oh, it's fine, you're, you're all right. fine. But right. that obviously there's still a lot of issues and still a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanna, I wanna kind of talk a little bit about that. Like, wh- like, you know how they say like, oh, President Barack Obama was, became president of the United States, racism is gone, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and it's kind of like that same yeah. sentiment of like, oh, you know, like gay rights is like, y'all can get married now. So there, there's no such thing as homophobia anymore, right. and, right. <laughs> which is like it's totally ridiculous. like outrageous. And then we're seeing this, I what is straight pride, which is just like, oh I don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, what? Sadly in my hometown of boxing. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's strange. It's like, like these, a lot of people, they, I think it's this, you know, fear that, okay, oh, suddenly gay people are, are um, attaining rights and equality. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like, oh, n- n- what about us now, right? What about the straight people? <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, w- I mean, what... <laughs> I I just like I don't I mean I think what we need to do my opinion is is that we just need to keep educating people right mm-hmm. about like what like why there's still so many uh, folks struggling um, so I mean what do you think like what do you think like we can do to talk about like why it is that you know we still need advocacy for the lgbtqia community we still right. need to do the work like it, just because like gay people suddenly have marriage rights that's not the end of it <laughs> right, right right i mean just look around in the country that we're currently in and every day waking up to a different attack on the f- at the federal level against community whether it's banning uh, trans folks from serving in the military to implementing rules that allow healthcare providers to discriminate against people for being who they are, right? And these are things that are happening as I'm speaking. Um, But it's funny that you say that about marriage equality because in New York State, the last LGBTQ uh, affirming legislation uh, that had passed uh, outside of this year was marriage equality. And a lot of people had that same perspective, which was, what else is there to do? And it's like there's so many other sectors of community that are being left out of conversation um, if you only focus on marriage, right? That's only one aspect um, of community need, and it does not translate to protections in other ways. So when trans people are being murdered, uh, when there are no non-discrimination protections against discrimination for folks like that's something that's real that's something that's tangible and that's something that needs that needs to be addressed but i think driving that narrative home has been important for us even in new york because people have that same perspective um of community not needing anything else and it's something that we've had to get really good at making sure that folks know like actually New York is progressive, but <laughs> we still need to use our voices to make sure that we're passing affirming laws because 
as we have seen, when the federal government is not sort of like on your side, the last line of defense that we have is state government, right? And so we have to make sure that our state government protections are in line with the future that we envision for all of us. And that takes work. Yeah, um, definitely. For sure. I mean, I, I'm shocked that that ban only passed like a couple weeks ago, you yeah. said? I yeah. mean, like, New York is supposed to be, like, a very progressive mm -hmm. state, right? Especially New York City is supposed to be, like, super welcoming, super progressive. And, um, you know, that that's shocking to me. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about a that. A lot of people don't, honestly. Yeah. And I can see why, right? Like, we still do kind of live in a bubble here in New York City. You um, do, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that we did when we started our advocacy work was talk to people upstate, downstate, and getting... Um, just input from folks saying like, I don't even have like any affirming space that I can go to outside of a coffee shop every Thursday, right? And that's in New York State. So it's something that I try not to take for granted a lot of the times. Like, yeah, New York City is a great hub of innovation and uh, diversity, but there's other parts just in this state alone that they don't have the same protections, they don't feel the same level of safety and comfort that we feel here. That's totally true. I, w I went to school in upstate New York. It's a totally different place than mm -hmm. New York City. Oh yeah. New York City <laughs> is very, very unique and, and, and a huge exception, right, to the rest of the state. I, I feel that way about most states in this country. You know, most of the metropolitan cities are, are always going to attract like diverse people and immigrants and um the arts right people who mm -hmm. are naturally creative and and more and like kind of like open to new experiences and challenges so i feel like the city is always attract like those you know people that are the little bit more like open to new experiences and yeah. and welcoming to people of different backgrounds and colors and races and religions mm -hmm. um but when i was in upstate I mean, as a as an Asian woman and an Asian woman that kind of stands out a little bit, <laughs> like you know, I got like my hair, my glasses, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I I definitely was a target to yeah. for a lot of people, um, for a lot of teasing and bullying and like just like playing out racism and playing out sexism and mm -hmm. you know, it's just and it, it it doesn't make sense to me why it has to be this way. Like, why is it that cities are the only places that I can find, like, welcoming arms? Like, we need to be focusing on these other areas as well that, you know, don't have as many resources. Um, mm -hmm. You know, does, does, the, does the center have any plans of expanding or is it really <laughs> just like a mobile, like, expansion? But, like, mm -hmm. what about, like, is there any plan to try you know to um create like these s small centers maybe for those folks who don't have access to new york city mm -hmm. right yeah for sure um it's an interesting question because we're sort of like uniquely situated in the fact that we do work uh, we do have phys a physical presence in new york city but we also have this statewide advocacy campaign um, but then we also talk to other centers across the country. Um, and that could be anything from sharing resources to best practices. It's something that we're always sort of plugged into. And then, like, 
in the last couple of years, we've been very mindful that we have to respond to a lot of things that are happening nationally because we hear from community members who get freaked out um, when there's a new federal attack um, and thinking like, okay, so how does this gonna affect me? What can I do? And making sure that we are disseminating that information as well. We'll always be a resource for community and we'll always figure out how we can work and build partnerships outside of New York City and in New York City um, with other folks who wanna do this work and wanna take this to the next level. So we're always open and willing to share as much as we can with folks, for sure. That's great, yeah. I, I think I think what the, like what we really need focus on is that expansion. And, and, and like you were mentioning earlier, with technology now and mm -hmm. the internet, that has become a lot easier. Sure. I think, like, I, I guess, like, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I, what I notice and what I observe is with the internet, um, I feel like more people that might be living in those isolated communities without a lot of other folks like themselves uh, can now go on the internet and find, like, communities and forums and, like, all these places on the internet where they are meeting people like them. Yeah. And it's given them the confidence and the comfort to, you know, come out more. Because I, I, I remember, like, as a young person growing up, I, I didn't have internet when I was younger. I didn't, mm. you know, I'm 35, so I didn't have internet until like, later high school, right? So, like, when I was in my, like, elementary, middle school, and early high school years, I, I had no internet. Um, so, a lot of, I remember, like, I had this high school friend who, you know, people bullied a lot because they were different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were identified as a male at the time but would show up to school wearing like pink dresses mm. and people didn't see that often. I grew up in California too. So, um, you know, that wasn't really seen a lot mm -hmm. and without like the internet, um, you know, you don't see, you only see what's in your local community, what's yeah. just in your immediate environment. Right. And so, like, they didn't see that, and so they don't understand it. And, and I think people react very negatively when they see something that they don't understand. And so when they saw my friend wearing a pink dress to school, you know, their, their immediate reaction was you know, disgust right. and, and, and anger and, you know, the wanting to just, like, tease and bully this person. Um, and... You know, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a very, like, open household so that even though I am not, uh, I don't identify as LGBTQIA, I'm a cis woman. I'm a cis, you know, straight woman, essentially. And, you know, even though, like, I, I, I didn't, you know, grow up with, like, any of these issues, I felt so much for my friend. Like, I just felt it was so wrong. Like, yeah. it, it's an inherent wrongness that mm -hmm. you can just know if you're a decent human being, <laughs> right? And right. just because they were wearing a pink dress at school doesn't mean that they don't have the right to exist, right? right? And so um, I found myself, like, being a friend to this person and, and being one of the few friends to this person. And... 
I think like years later, I mean, we didn't talk for a long while after high school, but then years later, I remember um, running into them, just like the market or something. Mm -hmm. And they told me like how important it was for them back then to have that like support of even just one person, you know, just to have the friendship of just one person. and so to get back to the internet and what it's done for people, I think that's that just knowing that they have the support of one person out there is such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And it means the world to someone who is going through all these, you know, questions and frustrations and you know, like that's a crazy time too. Being a teenager, I mean, I you're trying to find yourself. Like, you have no idea who you are and like right. what you want in life. And you know, it's already a crazy enough time. Right. Like, let alone you know having kids like mm-hmm. bully you for just like trying to express yourself and be who who you are. And so that's why I love New York. Yeah. Because you walk around New York and you see all types of different people dressing in whatever the fuck they want. Right. And that's that's <laughs> what I love about this city. Like no one cares what you wear. You can wear whatever you want mm-hmm. and and you could be yourself, express yourself in whatever ways and, and that's okay here. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean, I, I I just I don't really have a question for you. Sorry, I'm just like <laughs> rambling now. No, um, but thank I you for being a good person. We need <laughs> more people like you, Cindy. <laughs> oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, okay, so let's let's talk like let's just like talk um, about like information on mm-hmm. where people can uh, find more about the center, follow, uh, you know, contact, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So if you would like to join our mobile advocacy network, which I just mentioned, um, you can text the word Rise Out, R-I-S-E-O-U-T, to the number 69866. Um, Doing so will plug you into our advocacy work. So whenever there's an opportunity to move legislation or a rally or to vote, we'll make sure that you're the first to know. Um, Otherwise, you can uh, go to gaycenter.org slash advocacy to get more in-depth information on our advocacy program and on our current campaigns. And you can always follow us uh, on social media. That's LGBT Center NYC um, on all of our social media platforms. So Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And if anyone wants to get in contact with you particularly, can they go through the center to to talk to you? Yes, we have an email if you want. If you just have an idea, you can email advocacy at gaycenter.org. And then they can just like ask for you or something if they want to talk to you. Okay, for sure. (laughs) Thank you again. No problem. Um, This was a really, really special episode for me. Thank you all for being here for our uh, Pride edition. Um, thank you, Jamie Jesperson, and thank you, Trevon Mayers, for being here. And thank you, everyone, for joining us at Activist NYC, the podcast. Your support is much appreciated. Activist NYC, the podcast, is presented in partnership with Listening Party, the creators of Family FM. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Be sure to follow Activist NYC on Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Activist NYC. Tune in next time.